are starting a new series today um, on spiritual gifts, and I'm really excited to get into this um, with everybody. I'm Pastor Andrew. For you, um, some of you guys out there who may not know who I am, um, I'd love to meet with you and, uh, you know, get dinner or coffee or something sometimes, so um, please reach out to me. But, you know, oftentimes, like, we have a plan, right? And we like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And God's like, that's a cool plan, but what if we just didn't do that plan, you know? And um, change something. So per normal, I, you know, I had a, a plan in mind starting into this series, and God was like, you know, hey, how about we try this instead first, and let's get into that. So while we're, we're still on this same journey of spiritual gifts, we're going a little bit different direction today. And, um, but in fact, let's just start at the same place I was planning on starting anyways, and um, that's at Ephesians 4, verse 11. So if you want to turn um, with me there to Ephesians 4, 11, or the verses will be on the screen, it says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, see, these gifts in the Bible, they're considered what um, we call the five-fold gifts because um, they believe that these giftings in general are what every church needs to be using and working in to be able to cause the church to grow. And so it's called this five-fold gifts. Um, sometimes they're also referred to as the apest, A-P-E. S-T, well, that P-E, like, really got me there. Um, I don't know, but um, for apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Um, so you may see these different things, and we're going to be going through these for the next um, month or so. And so, um, but before we get to that part of the series and things, I want you guys to have the opportunity to go and to take a, um, the spiritual gift test of revolving around these five. Um, we passed them out twice now um, online through email and Facebook, um, but I will be sending out another email this week with the link to um, go take this test online. Um, also come up on our Facebook group, so if you're not in our Facebook group, um, join that as well. But it's going to be really helpful for you to know where you are gifted of these five as we move forward so that you can learn about how you were designed and how God created you to be. And you can also learn about your family and the people around you and go, oh, that's why you're so weird, you know? And um, because for some reason, you know, people that aren't designed directly like us seem a little weird, but when you can understand it and why God created them the way that they are, um, it makes us be able to be the body that God called us to be. So um, I, I highly encourage you to take that test if you haven't. Like I said, it'll go out this week, so just be watching your... Oh, Siri searched one for me, I guess. I don't, I don't know why, but that's really not... You could just ask Siri, I guess, and she'll bring you right to it. Um, but no, just be watching for that. And I believe that every person has one of these five gifts as kind of their main... Um, kind of design in life, and every person varies, mixed with all, like, the way you were raised and all this other stuff, and, um, but I believe that everybody has one of these five gifts that they move and function in in life, and it doesn't just pertain to their ministry or to when you're at church, but how you operate through your whole life, and uh, so we'll be digging deeper into each one of these gifts as this series um, goes on, but to understand a verse in the the you know, we can read one verse and go, okay, I think I have a good idea of what that verse means. But to really understand a verse, you have to look at it in the context of the scripture that surrounds it, that comes before and after, so you can really understand what this was um, saying. Because most verses in the Bible aren't just some one-off saying. They're parts of letters, they're parts of stories, they're parts of um, historical narration. And so you have to see it all in the whole to really understand it. So we're going to continue um, after verse 11 and to verses 12 and 13. 
talking of the five gifts, it says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. See, the goal of these five spiritual gifts is to help us to do God's work, to build each other up and bring us to some sort of supernatural unity within the church. And so today we're actually going to focus on unity because if that's the end goal of these spiritual gifts, we need to understand what unity means and what it really looks like so that way we know why we have these gifts in the first place. Um, But before we jump into really the depth of unity, this verse also gives us kind of the requirements of who we are to be unified with. And that is that phrase, those who have the knowledge of God's Son. And it's not knowledge as in those who know about him, who know facts about Jesus or things, but it's more in the, the knowledge as they acknowledge God's Son, that they know who Jesus is and that they acknowledge him as God's Son and that he is the only path that brings us to the Father. That is the requirement. It doesn't mean they have to have the same beliefs about the end times or the same beliefs about, you know, all of these different things. It's just that they need to understand who Jesus is and believe in him as our path to heaven. Now, this does not mean that we get to judge or condemn or shame anybody who doesn't believe that, right? We still love them as God loves them. We love them as we love ourselves, and we let God's loving kindness flow through us to draw them to him. But we do not have to strive for unity with those who do not understand and acknowledge Jesus. This does mean that we need to strive for unity among those who hold those little bit different beliefs. Everything that I would really label as secondary to Jesus is our path to heaven and our path to God. If they can believe that with you, then you should be able to unify with them. And so that means a lot of putting aside a lot of our beliefs sometimes, a lot of what we think we know or should know or the right way to do things, you know. We have to put those things aside so that we can be unified. We're not called to be defenders of our truth, of our beliefs, or our interpretation of things. We're called to be defenders of unity. And that should be our first thing. So why is it so important to talk about unity before we talk about our gifts? Well, Paul found it not only important enough to say that this is the goal of our gifts, but he actually started out this whole chapter laying the foundation of what unity means and the importance of it before even getting to the gifts. So let's look the verses before, Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. It's Paul speaking, and he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given us each, each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Verse 7 starts with this, this word, however, a yet, a but, a, a nevertheless, right? So you, you can't talk about gifts without first having a foundation of unity because gifts are secondary. They're the however, the, the nevertheless, once you, know, once you understand unity, nevertheless, you can have these gifts. 
and you won't be able to correctly use them or understand them or understand others. Um, if you can't do that, it'll lead you away from unity because unity is number one. Make every effort to keep unity. Not make every effort to be who you are. Make every effort to use your gifts more than anything else. Make every effort to be unified. God has given you special abilities, but those abilities mean nothing if you can't keep unity. Sometimes I like to believe that God enjoys to make life harder than it needs to be. Um, but there's a purpose, because if life was always easy, then we wouldn't need him, and we wouldn't rely on him. And it's not even that he purposely makes it hard. It's just that sometimes, you know, even like a, a parent, it's, it's enjoyable sometimes when my kids still have to, like, come to me so that I can help them with things. And, you know, and sometimes I'm like, can't you just do it on your own already? You know, like, man. But, and I think God's kind of similar. But our, our gifts, like we're getting into later weeks, they can cause conflict. They can cause some confusion and some hardship trying to work together and understand how we're different. But if we get stuck fighting on our differences and not fighting for our unity, it's going to cause even more division and more problems. We need to learn to be unified. And Paul hit this really hard in verses 4 through 6, driving the idea of, of one, right? There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And that one God is in everything, making it all one. It's all about being one. Right, this is such an important topic. In the book of John chapter 17, we have this recorded prayer of Jesus that he was praying right before he was arrested and uh, like headed towards his crucifixion. And he knew this was coming. And so this is his last cry to God for, for everything. It was in this chapter. In the prayer, Jesus laid out his whole heart before him, and he prayed for you. He prayed for all of us in that verse. And if you look at verses 20 through 23, it says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Isn't that awesome that Jesus prayed for you? And, and this is what he prayed. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I mean, Jesus' prayer for us, was that we could just be one for everybody who believes in him, that we could be enjoying perfect unity. And not only do you say it one time, you say it twice, that if we can just be unified, the world will come to know Jesus. Like that's God's plan. It's not through outreach. It's not through, you know, big, cool church services or better speaking or better worship or, you know, all of these things. It's through unity that the world will come to know Jesus. You want to know why the church is not as effective as it once was? Because we're not unified. We're not one. Right, right? Like, it's understandable that people are not drawn to the church because we look like a really dysfunctional family that doesn't like being together. Right? Like, nobody was like, if that family was walking through, like, you know, a foster, like, uh, gathering stuff to gather children, those kids would be like, don't take me home with you. You know, it's better this way. And that's what the world thinks when they see the church. They're like, no, I don't want to be a part of that. 
I see what's happening over there. That's not better than the life I have. Why would I want to go home with that family? But if we were this, you know, I mean, we're still going to look like a really weird mixed family. But the problem is we should be loving each other so much that people are like, I don't get why they do, but they do. And I want to be a part of that somehow. And that would draw people in, and it should, and that's the promise that Jesus made. Now, today we're not going to spend most of the, like, majority of our day, we're, we're focused on unity within our church. And all of these same things, because it's all scripture and it's all about unity, apply to how we should be unified with the church outside of this building, with, with other churches here in town, with Christians all across the world, we should be holding to this same unity, that we should be able to get together with them, even though we may not believe in the same path through Jesus directly. And our, our ideas about end times and our ideas about salvation and in little different nuances of it should not hold us back from being able to be unified with the other churches here in our cities. Like I said, it's obvious that we need to do that as well, but today our main focus is us here, this family that meets here um, in this building regularly and outside of this building regularly. But before we dig deeper into what unity is and how it should look within our church, I want to lay a ground rule. Because, and I'm going to talk about this in a second. Um, personally, this is something that I'm aware of that comes natural to me, and so I'm sure it comes natural to more than just me. And as we talk through this stuff, it's going to become really easy to point fingers at somebody else and say, well, that's the reason we're not having unity, or if that person did this or that person. But I want you to, the moment you start thinking of that, you know, What's that saying? Like when you're pointing at somebody else, there's really three fingers pointing back at you because you probably need it three times more than they do. And it's that idea. Have your mind open to your own shortcomings. The moment you start to think so-and-so should have blah, 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 think, what could I be doing instead? Or what should I do, right? What can I do to fix this? Now, almost every time I sit down to work on a sermon, I don't know if it's Satan who's trying to disqualify me, disqualify me or God's like, if you really want to teach that, then you really got to be tested on it because I want to make sure that you know what you're doing. And because these past two weeks have been a real challenge in my heart on am I fighting for unity or am I causing division? Right I, On Facebook, I, like I said, I deleted Facebook off my phone um, because it separates me from a lot of me doing this. And, um, but... Um, you know, I was bored one day and still happened to get on, and I had a friend, I thought somebody I was fairly close to, a Christian man, post something that I didn't think reflected Jesus very well. And uh, so, in a way, I challenged him on it, and I tried to do it the best that I could in what I felt was biblical, but um, let's just say that it backfired, and obviously, it's Facebook, and it's never going to go well. And um, <laughs> some point, I'll fully learn this. But instead of being in one heart, one mind, one body, I caused division, and we were far off from each other. And I was not fighting for unity. Instead, I caused disunity. I needed to apologize for my actions, and I did. And then there was another thing that happened, because God's like, well, you kind of failed that test, so let's try again. And, uh, and so Open Bible as a denomination has been making some changes and, you know, I'm not fully on board with how they're doing things and that's okay because, again, I can still be fully unified with them 
even if our ideas are a little bit different. And I was probably too vocal about things with some people and not leading towards unity, but causing division. And I could do better at handling my reaction to that. And so I, I'm not up here saying I've got it all figured out. I'm up here saying I'm probably worse than you guys. And, uh, you know, and so just understand that when I'm talking today, this is literally something that I am fighting for in my own life recently. But this is something that we should be fighting for. And it's probably the most important thing in our church that we should be fighting for. And I want to say that over the past month or so, it's been brought up to me and to other leaders and other things in our church that we are not as unified as God would like us to be. And it's not even that we're just slightly off course. I feel like we're fairly far off course. And I think the last few weeks has it been brought to our leadership and um, stuff that we've been trying really hard to make these changes that we need to make and to fight for unity a lot more. And I think things are going well. And... Um, and that we're getting somewhere, but I think that we need to understand more of the why behind it, and that's why we're here today. Um, I literally was like, God, you know, I don't really want to talk about that. I told him I was going to start this new series, and um, so I started researching, you know, in, you're getting into my series, started at Ephesians 4, and it's like, why does it keep saying unity so much in here? You know, so then I went to, like, other spiritual gift verses, and it's like, you need to be one body to use your spiritual gifts. And I'm like, okay, God, I get it. We'll start with unity, you know, and so we're here because it's important, right? And it's okay. I want to say this too. It's also, it's okay, okay to have your close friends. It's okay to have your friends. Jesus had many, many, many disciples, but often we only hear of him hanging out with his 12 closest friends. And even within that 12, he had even closer friends, right? Unity doesn't mean that you can't have close friends, and that you're not going to have people that are close, but it shouldn't look like we're divided either. And again, no excuses, right? This is even for me. The moment that you feel that you need to make an excuse is the moment that you should realize that there's disunity in our church. And if you're making excuses for it, consider that you might be part of the problem. I'm going to talk about some of our divisions because I think that we need to be clear on where these things lie so that we know where the gaps are that we need to fill. Um, it's hard to build something up when you don't know the blueprints or what we're working with. And so I think that some of these things need to be labeled. I went back and forth on it, but we have, um, you know, the group here that um, I'm considering our BA, but not because of what you're thinking, but it's before Andrew. Um, okay, and then we have the groups of people that have started coming since I've been here. We have the after Andrew group, and then we have those that have started coming from Silver Soldiers. And why all of these things are true, and they're all part of our story and our foundation, and it's okay to be known from where you've come and how you've got here and stuff. The problem lies in the fact that we come and we're divided at those lines when we gather together sometimes. Again, I'm not talking about making sure there's unity in your friend groups. I'm talking about making sure there's unity within this group, right? People who come into our church should not be able to tell who came from where and when, but they can't. They should just come in and see one church. You know, besides a lot of the, the subtle hello and good mornings and goodbyes, you know, up until the last few weeks, there wasn't a lot of interaction between those groups, and so we need to do a better job 
getting across those divides from all of us. Again, there's no point fingers. It's, okay, what can I do to change this? And we're going to talk about those things today. In Galatians 3, 27 through 28, it says, All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Like we are united here today and we can be because of our belief in Jesus. And there's no longer the old and young group, the old and new group, the addicts, the recovered, the traditional, the progressive. There are no labels on this group except for we are one body of Christ Jesus. And that's the only thing that matters. What solves the problem is each one of us taking our own responsibility to defend the unity of this church. Right? Unity starts individually. Which is a funny thing to say, right? Because unity involves people and lots of people, but it starts with you. It literally does. You know, unity, it's you and I. But um, it starts there. You have to make the decision to fight for it. Nobody else can fight for unity if you're not. Like, it won't work. And I know this because as I've been writing this message, this is what God is doing in me, that, like, I have to be the one that fights for it. I was really impressed and moved by someone in our church who was aware of this issue, and we were discussing, literally, how can we work on this? And uh, they referred to one of the other groups as they. And then, like, immediately apologized. I, I didn't mean that. You know, it's not us and them. It's just us. And I know that that's not their heart, but that's the kind of attitude that we need to have if we're going to get any real unity within our church. Romans 15, 5 through 6, it says, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you to live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, praise, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I read this verse, I'm... I find it kind of hard to believe what it says, but God is not praised in our disunity. When we're here on a Sunday morning and we're worshiping, but we're divided, God is not praised in that. And if we don't, if we're not unified, then of course our church isn't really going to grow, right? Because it's through unity that people will come and want to be a part. Right? All of our worship, all of our speaking, all these updates, all these things, our outreaches and stuff we've done, if we're not unified, are all in vain. Right? It's like that video clip from Finding Nemo that we watched. Unless we're all swimming the same direction, each of us doing our part, we're just going to keep falling into the traps of Satan and be divided and eventually fish will be out of the water and not able to breathe and they just want away from this group. But if we can all keep swimming together, we can break those traps and we can get out of where we're at and set people free and all these glorious things. You know, I believe that God is up to some really big things here in this church. Now, he has a big plan and he has some really big desires and things that are going to happen here. And Satan knows that. And Satan doesn't need to come in and get us all caught in sin or, you know, all these sorts of things. He just needs to come in and keep us divided. If half those fish in the illustration like weren't swimming, they wouldn't have been able to break free. We need to be divided. Or not, we need to be divided. Oh, jeez, Lord. <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying. We'll just move on, okay? 
divided we stand, right? No. Uh, all right. Well, anyways, it starts right here in us, okay? So what does unity look like? We're going to go back to the beginning of Ephesians 4. Paul gave this really short list of things that are required for unity to happen. While he was leading up to these spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 2 starts with, be humble and gentle. Humility is the number one step for unity. Right? Paul in um, the book of Philippians in chapter 2, 2 through 8, he's talking about unity. And in that, he actually explains what does it mean to be humble. He starts off, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I love that. Humility means don't be selfish. Don't try and impress others. It's not about you here. It's about Jesus. Be humble, which means think of others as better than yourself. But you can't point fingers at somebody. You can't assume somebody else is at fault if they're better than you. And look out for the interest of others too. And then Paul continues in verse 5. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. And he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You have to have the same attitude of Jesus. Though Jesus, being God, was literally better than everyone, gave up thinking of his equality with God and instead humbled himself even lower than other humans to a death that he did not deserve. That's the example for our humility. Talk about putting someone else's interest first, right? Even if you believe you are 100% right and you have 100% the authority to do whatever you feel, does not mean you don't get to choose to not be humble. In another place, Paul is talking about the disunity, and he says, why not let yourself be wronged? Fight for unity, even if it means letting yourself be wronged in moments. Jesus was not right going through the death that he went through. He was completely undeserved. But in putting other people's interests before his own, he did that. Is that the kind of humble attitude you have when you come into this building? When you're trying to build unity within our church? That their interests matter too, and not just matter, but even maybe more than yours? Now, some of you probably heard this verse and it's like, yeah, my interests do matter, you know? And you're on the wrong side. That's not what this is saying, you know? Division comes when you're thinking of yourself more highly than others around you. According to Proverbs 6, there's that, the verse of like the, you know, what they call like the seven deadly sins, the things that God, you know, attests and he hates. The very last one is a person who causes division. You are to uphold the interests of others and to trust that they will do the same for you. But even if they don't, you still uphold theirs. Just like Jesus did, you know, it says in Romans that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. 
Whether or not people were going to come to believe in him, he still kept their interest at heart and died for them. And John 15, 13 says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. That's the example we must strive for when it comes to humility. It says, be humble and gentle. And the word gentle in that verse comes, is actually the word meek in um, more of the original language. And meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of the heart whereby a person is willing to accept or submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. Now, a lot of this in reference to meek in the scripture is reference to God, like that I'm willing to accept and submit to God without resistance to his will, his desire for me. But that's the attitude we should also have when it comes to the church. If you were humble and meek, you would have no issue with anybody else in the church because your interests don't matter as much as them. They're more important than you in your attitudes. And I know this sounds harsh, right? Like, oh, that's hard to do. But if our church was truly, fully unified, then you would know that everybody else cares about you more than themselves and that your interests matter more to them than it does to you. So instead of just one person yourself caring and fighting for your things, you have the whole church caring and fighting for your interests. And so we should never have that attitude of, why is no one caring for me? Now we are human. We will slip up. And that's also the reason for grace and mercy. And we get to that. It talks about burying with one another, making allowance for each other's faults, um, because that is needed because we are all not good people, you know, naturally, and we will choose ourselves, and we will mess up, and that just happens, and we have to be okay with that as well. Paul continues in Ephesians 4 with, be patient with each other. Literally, to be able to love each other, we need to be patient. In 1 Corinthians 13, there's, you know, it's the love chapter, and it talks about love, and it starts off talking about love with, love is patient. It's the first thing. You cannot love without being patient. In the original Greek, that word patient translates to long-suffering. Like, man, that is the definition of patience, right? right? And you can't be patient just once because that would be short-suffering, and that's not patience. You have to be long-suffering, sticking with others over and over and over, and then over and over and over, and then over and over and over, and you just continue to do that because that's what love is, and that's what patience is. Other synonyms for really this idea of patience is enduring, constant, consistent, steadfast, persevering. Are we actually patient with one another in here? You know, at that definition of patience, I've never been patient in my life. You know, because I've definitely been to the end of my patience. And that's, and not, that's not a real thing, supposedly. Paul continues with specifically what you're supposed to be patient about, and he says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. There's another kind of area where he's like, don't point fingers at somebody else. You know, make room for their faults. Make allowance for them. When we start looking at all of each other's giftings and all of those things going on, we will begin to understand where we need to have grace with each other and understand and make allowance for people to be different than us and figure out how that all works. But understand that we all have faults. I have faults. None of us are perfect in here, and so you have to make room for that from other people. 
Colossians 3, 13 and 14, Paul says, make allowance for each other's faults. This is a, a, another letter to another church. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And make allowance for others' faults because forgiving them, because the Lord forgave you. There's other scripture that says, if you can't forgive others, then there is no forgiveness from the Lord for you. And that's a scary thing. But we should be able to make allowance. We should be able to forgive because of our love. I mean, honestly, do you love everybody in here? If you looked around this room, to say, I love that person. Like real love, though. Like lay down your life. Like, yeah, I'd take a bullet for them. I'd step in the way of, of somebody else saying harsh words for them. I'd step up and I'd get their back. I'd stand up before them and say, no, we don't talk about my family like that. I love those people and that's not how we act, right? That's that kind of love that binds us together in unity. First Corinthians 13 kind of love, love that's patient, kind, not jealous, not boastful, not proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful about each other. It endures through every circumstance. Is that the kind of love you have when you look around this room for these people? Or you, can you look around and go, yep, I'm holding that against that person. I've seen them do that. I saw them do that. I, you know, all these things. That's not love. I know when I read that and I look at people and I look at my life and I go, I'm not loving like I should be loving. And I have things to work on. And if you're not challenged by that verse, then let's go back to step one and start with humility. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, this is such a big issue because we divide easily because we love shallowly. Right? We have no depth to our love, so it's easy for us to pull apart because we're not rooted to each other. We're not in it with each other. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe nothing anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements of God's law. We owe a debt of love to everybody. And it can never be fulfilled. You do not have enough love to fulfill this debt of love that we have to one another. And when we act on that debt, we're fulfilling God's law. So maybe after an honest examination of yourself today, you may discover that maybe you're not quite as humble as or as loving as you thought. Maybe we're not really loving as deeply as we should be. And some of that could be because some of you have never really experienced the full love of God. And it's understandable. Right? Maybe you don't feel that you're fully forgiven of your sins, so it's hard to forgive other people because you haven't accepted forgiveness for yourself. And I would encourage you to open yourself up to the love that God has for you. Understand that Jesus died for you because you were worth everything to him, that he, desired, he died this undeserving death for you in hopes that you might come to know him. And because of what he has done, he has defeated sin, he's defeated every wrongdoing, anything you've ever done in your life, and he goes much deeper than any hurt and any problem, any sin and anything in your life, and he can root it out of you and bring you to freedom. Right? And some of you might be struggling with this other thing, and it's a, another term for a certain type of believer, and it's called a textualist. The author A.W. Tozer, he describes a textualist as a person 
who assumes that because he affirms the Bible's truthfulness, that he automatically possesses the things of which the Bible speaks. In other words, a textualist is someone who assumes that because they know what the Bible says, that they have those things in them. Right? Like, I know what the Bible says about love because I've read 1 Corinthians 13, so now I love perfectly. Right? And we, we think, like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but as Christians, we do that a lot. Well, I know what the fruit of the Spirit are, so it's obviously flowing out of my life. Too many of us live as though affirming biblical truths and saying, yeah, I believe that, is equivalent to actually doing it in reality. Right? Bible college, Bible courses, all those things, they can, so to speak, teach you to memorize the menu, but it doesn't ensure that you will ever taste the food. It's terrifying to think that hell may be full of a bunch of Bible scholars with good theology, but never lived it out. Because it's not about what you know, it's about the fruit of your actions, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew 7. So why do words come out of our mouth sometimes that sound so unkind, ungentle, or unloving? Right? And some people would throw out the term, well, I'm just speaking the truth in love, right? Because that's a scripture, and I can use that. Again, that's, that's one of those textualist things. You know it, but you don't know it, you know? And there's a time for that. There's a lot of places, and we're not going to talk about today because I think the church worldwide overall could use a little bit more of this shutting up in love instead of the speaking truth in love. You know, if we were honestly concerned about others, and this is myself included in this. Like, I wish I could add a thing into my Facebook app that was like, you know, as I'm typing something out, it would just be like, God wouldn't do this, you know, and just, wow. You're like, send, send, come on, you know, and it's like, No. Don't do that. Man, traditions, habits, knowledge, theology, giving, your style, your sins, they're not more important than loving other people. Jesus says the problem is not really with your mouth anyways, it's with your heart in Matthew 12, 34. If love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control don't flow out of our hearts, it's not going to flow out of our mouth. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because we're not connected with the Spirit of God. It's that serious. Francis Chan in his book, Until Unity, which I highly recommend, it's his most recent book, but he says, if there truly is one unity-loving Spirit leading us, it makes no sense that we are becoming more and more divided. So either the Spirit never entered some of us, or we have done a masterful job of suppressing him. No matter how many Bible verses you know and how well you can teach the scriptures, you have to be willing to examine the fruit of your life to see if the Spirit has truly entered you. That's some serious stuff. First John is very clear over and over again that if you are not loving your fellow believers, then you are not living in the light. In other words, you may not even be truly saved if you cannot love the other believers. Look at your fruit to see if you really love the church. In other translations, that phrase, making allowance for one another in love, is bearing with one another in love. Um, two weeks ago, when Nicole, the missionary, was here sharing with us, she mentioned this story of Moses, Aaron, and her. Um, so if I can get um, TJ and Jared and Chuck to come up here. Jared, can you grab a chair and, and bring it up with you? Uh, 
We're going to act out this story. And this story is found in Exodus 17. You can find it there if you just want to like set it right here so people can see online. Um, all right, TJ, you're going to be Moses because you have a beard and you're older than Jared. <laughs> Chuck doesn't have enough of a beard. So in this story, okay, the, the Israelites are headed into war and Moses believes that if he can hold his staff above his head, so the staff above his head, that they can win this battle. And as long as Moses keeps it above his head, oh, we just died. <laughs> Dang it, Moses. No, um, all right. But as long as he can hold it above his head, that they'll win. And this is working. They're, they're up there. He's holding this up. And every time he's keeping it above his head, they are winning this battle. But his arms start to get tired and he starts dropping it lower and lower and they start losing. And his two buddies here, um, Aaron and her, um, not like female her, okay. Um, sorry, Jared. Yeah, um, H-U-R, her. They, they realize Moses is getting tired. And so they, they pull up a rock. Jared brought it up here. They get Moses to sit down on the rock. Oh, yeah, cleaned it off for him. And then Aaron and her, they, they grab onto the sides of the staff and they help him hold it above his head. And then they go on to win this battle because these guys came and they bared with one another to be able to see the victory all the way to the end. All right, keep holding it. We're gonna, we, got, we need some victory in here today, right? Uh, <laughs> man, I, I love this picture. Because everybody in their life has a battle. Everybody in their life has something going on, and we need each other to come and hold each other's hands up. Right? This is what bearing one, with one another means. TJ's recovery is not his own thing. This is all of our things. If TJ fails, we fail. We lose the battle, guys. This is what it means to be a body. If, if we're not holding Chuck's hands up as he gets old, many years down the road, you know, and, and sticking with him and taking care of him, we lose the battle. If we're not helping Jared and Whitney grow the youth ministry, we are losing the battle. All right, thank you guys. You can go see. Good spot, boys. Good spot. Yeah. <laughs> and we are one body, and if our arm just stops working someday, the rest of our body has to step up and make up for that. It doesn't just go, well, well, there's the end, right? Man, everybody in life is bearing something. And to assume that you're the only one with a struggle and not go and lift each other up is just incredibly wrong. Galatians 6, 2-3 says, Share each other's burdens. In this way, you obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Right, as we've already read in Ephesians 4, that the purpose of our gifts is to build each other up to unity. Right? Romans 14, 19 says, So then let us aim for harmony in the church to try and build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Imagine if we were a group of people that only had loving, encouraging words coming out of our, out of our mouths. There'd be no room for division because we're too busy building each other up and encouraging each other. 
Paul continues in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Man, make every effort, every moment, every opportunity you have, choose to fight for unity. In Luke 15, we find the story of the prodigal son. A lot of you guys probably have heard parts and bits of this story, but this story involves a father who has two sons. And the younger of the sons asks for his inheritance early. And uh, the father goes, all right, and he splits up everything he owns and divides it between his two sons and gives that son his inheritance, that younger son. And he, so he gets all of this money. His, his father was fairly well off, had lots of things, and he hands over his half of the inheritance to that son. And that son decides, I'm going to run away. He takes off. He leaves home, takes all of his money, and he squanders it on wild parties, on prostitutes, on drugs, all sorts of not good things. And he ends up with no money. He has nothing. He's homeless. He ends up working for a farmer. He's trying to feed pigs, and he still doesn't have enough money for food. And all he can think is like, man, if I could eat some of that pig's food, not even eat the pigs. That's how desperate he was, you know. They didn't eat pigs back then. They were missing out on bacon, but... He wanted the pig's food, and then he goes, you know, my servants, that, the servants that work for my dad, they're, they're pretty well off. What if I just go home, go to my dad, and say, hey, I messed up. Can I work for you? So he heads home, starts the journey, and it says when he was a long way off, his father saw him and ran down their long driveway or whatever it was down to him and grabbed him, and he held him, and he loved him, and he was, you're home, and... It didn't even like give the, the child a chance, give his son a chance to try and be a servant. He says, no, you're my child. He walks up to the house. He's like, we're having a party. And they, they slaughter a calf and they, they have this huge party to celebrate that the son came home. Isn't that just such a wonderful picture for all of us who have wandered so far away that, that God openly embraces us back and not to a servant or slave, but embraces us back to his child, fully back into the family, but there was another son. There was the older brother. And he was out working because he stayed faithful to his dad. And he comes home and he sees this party. And he asks the servant, what, what's up with this party? What's going on? Why did, I didn't get an invite. And uh, like, well, you need to check your email, man. No. Um, <laughs> he, you know, so he's just trying to figure out. And the servant goes, well, your brother, he came home. So your dad's throwing a big party. Instead of being happy that his younger brother came home, he gets mad. He's like, but I'm here. I'm, I'm working day after day. I'm faithful to God in every single way that I can be to my father. And this guy who just threw everything away gets to come home and he gets a party? Where's my party? And the father comes out and he's talking to him and he's like, son, you... You've had access to the party all the time. At any moment, all of this stuff, it's already been given to you. You had access to all of it. But today we get to celebrate that your brother that was lost is now found. Come in, come to the party, sit down at the table, be a family. And that's what our father wants from us. You know, we focus a lot on the sons in this story, right? But what is the father wanting? 
his family to be together, his children to come and sit at the same table and not be mad at each other, not be upset about who deserved more, or who God was here fighting for the longest for everything, and, and why does he get to just come in and enjoy all the fruit of my labor? doesn't matter. There's this picture at the end of the book of Revelation that the end goal is this giant marriage feast with God. All the believers of, of who got saved right before they died, those who had, you know, been saved their whole life, those who, you know, you have Moses and all of these great, you know, biblical heroes that are going to be sitting at those tables, and you're going to have people that were murderers and, and did all of the worst things you can think of who got saved, you know, on death row, will be sitting at that table, deserving of the exact same things that we are. Because that's what God wants when he says unity. Right? There are two main things that keep us from enjoying the table together. Right? Like the first son, we flee from the table in pursuit of our own desires, our own selfish things. Right? We fight for us. It's all about us. We're fighting for our things. We, we leave. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to live large. We're trying to, you know, find pleasure or significance. But until we can set that all aside and come back to the Father, we won't be able to be back at the table. But God is saying, come down from there. Come home. It's time to celebrate. Right in our table, our church, it's open to anyone, no matter where you've been in life, no matter how long you've been saved, or maybe you're not even saved, as Noah's saying, you, you belong before you believe. This is a, supposed to be your family. This is the idea of table groups to begin with is that this table is open for all people from all makes of life, no matter what you've done. That's why we have our community groups, our small groups that we call table groups. But the other thing that keeps us from being at the table together is standing there like the good brother, right? Refusing to join the party because the other brother sinned. Right? And when we are able to release our outrage, you know, that the prodigal has returned, Right? We stop demanding them to, a, to like pay a penance of sorts, you know, to start giving, well, you'll be accepted once you start giving some sort of positive contribution to this. Until we get past that attitude in ourselves, people won't feel unified and we won't be unified. And we need to set aside our self-righteousness and just come back to the Father as we are because we have been forgiven of the same. There is so much of God to go around, right? New believers coming here and getting saved, they're not taking anything away from you. Just like the father was saying to the son, you've had access to all this stuff the whole time. We could have had parties every night if you wanted to. What a great dad, right? You know, anyway. Right, they don't have to come. They don't need to earn your favor. They don't need to earn your grace. God has freely given it to them. Why can't you? On top of that, new believers add to your life. They're a great addition to our church, and that's, that, like, that's the, the purpose why we're here. And the giftings that God gives you is for unity. It's to build the church, and if you have nothing new coming in, there's nothing new to build. And when you're not moving in those giftings, you're literally stunting your growth. Sometimes we wonder why our spiritual life seems stale. It's because you're not pouring out to get refilled. You're getting nothing new in if you're not putting anything out. 
make every effort to keep the unity means that you are able to put people before our selfish desires no matter the circumstance. You're always ready to celebrate the people for taking a step closer to Jesus from wherever they are in their lives. Right? Sunday mornings and really any gathering should be a celebration that we are all here together in unity for one purpose, one heart, one mind. Right? We don't get to celebrate only ourselves or our favorites. Right? The feast, the party, it flows from the Father's joy. Right? And his joy comes from the gathering of all of his children together including those who are at the beginning of cleaning themselves up and those who nearly refuse to come because of the disgust over the guest list. We all belong at the table. Right? How different would it look instead of gossipy exchanges, we actually sat down with each other and enjoyed the, our relationships and we celebrated it. One of uh, JFK's uh, most quoted sayings is, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's kind of that kind of attitude we should have for the church, right? Ask not what the church can do for you, but what can you do for the church because we are the church. The church benefits when we are looking to put in instead of just coming to take out. Romans 15, 5 through 7 says, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you to live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. While this is something we must strive for and try and make happen, make every effort, it's the Spirit that gives us the ability to have supernatural unity. Right? There's going to be moments when you're like, God, I'm, I'm more short-suffering right now than long-suffering. I have no more patience for this situation. But that's when you tap into God because he has endless patience, because he's love and it's always pouring out. May God, who gives you patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony. If we can grasp and fight for unity as that's our main cause with the help of the Holy Spirit, God will grow our church. And not just numerically, but spiritually deeper as well. I know we've gone a little bit long, but it's been good, I think. And uh, there's three things I want to happen, I want to see happen before we dismiss. And uh, I don't know, I, after I read through this, I'm going to start, but maybe you feel that you just need to come up and, and publicly repent of your actions before the whole church. That's a very biblical thing, and I'm going to start that. Um, that's one of the things that, that will be available if you feel you need to do that. Um, another thing that I would like to see happen is maybe there's somebody in here that you know that you haven't been fighting for unity with, and maybe you need to go to them and ask for forgiveness. Right? Maybe that person that came to mind that you wanted to blame you know, during this message, and you had to keep saying, no, that's not what's happening. Maybe that's the person you need to go talk to. Right? Because without that, without some humility, without some vulnerability, we're not going to have unity. And before you walk out of the doors today, find someone you don't know very well in here and say, hey, when can we get together? And get it on the calendar. Don't just say, hey, let's get together sometime and then leave. Get it on the calendar, otherwise it won't happen.
Um, I'm going to start from up here and then feel free to get up and go wherever. But I want to apologize before God, before you guys, for not always fighting for unity in this church. For letting my frustrations get the best of me and saying things that I probably shouldn't have said to people and not causing unity but causing division. And I hope that you guys forgive me as your leader because I shouldn't have done those things. And I promise to fight for unity every moment that I can, that I have every one of your backs. And when I hear something happening between people in the church and stuff, that I'll fight for you guys with everything that I have. And I hope you can hold me to that. So find people, come up here. I'll put the mic up here if you want to say something publicly. But find people in here because I'm sure that there's somebody and I know some people I need to talk to.